Well, two weeks ago, we looked at the first chapter of Jonah 1. We looked at the introduction, uh, Jonah 1, 1 through 3, and then the rest of the chapter in verses 4 through 16. And today, I'd like to pick that up with you, um, reading Jonah 1, verse 17 to 2, verse 10. Now, we'll read that because I assume most of you are there. Uh, but I failed to put into the bulletin that we would also read from Matthew 12. So after we've read Jonah, we'll turn to Matthew 12. We'll begin with Jonah 1. 1 verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and he heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me, weeds were wrapped about my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my heart, my prayer came to, your, to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon dry land. Let's then turn over to Matthew 12. Note tonight, along with our reading of Jonah 3, we'll read from Luke 11, which is the other account of Jesus speaking about the sign of Jonah. But today, this morning, I mean, we'll read from Matthew 12, verse 38 to 42. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of Sheba, the, the, sorry, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment 
with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Well, in chapter 1 of Jonah, we were introduced to the prophet of the Lord. He was appointed by God to do God's work and to carry God's word to a particular people. He was a prophet of Israel, sent to the ten tribes during the time of Jeroboam II, to a wicked and evil nation, Israel. But we saw in Jonah 1 that he was sent now to Nineveh, that enemy of Israel, their arch enemy, a nation so evil our minds can barely imagine. And yet rather than being an obedient servant, a humble, prayerful, selfless prophet, we find that Jonah was running from the Lord. Jonah had begun what we saw was a downward spiral. He had gone down to Joppa to go down to Tarshish. He had gone down into the ship. Finally, he was thrown down over the side of that ship. But we were also reminded that God had not forgotten his runaway prophets. In chapter 1, we were reminded that everything is in the Lord's sovereign hands. He's in control of everything. In fact, he has ordained everything. He has appointed everything. He appointed the storm. He appointed Jonah. But he also appointed salvation. When we ended chapter 1, we were left with a prayerful crew of sailors who worshipped the living God for the salvation they had received versus a prayerless preacher who had not given despite seeing these pagan sailors humbling themselves. Prayer, Jonah refused to give the sailors offered to God. Gordon Kenny, commentator on Jonah, in a book that's worth reading on Jonah, said the Christian cannot remain prayerless or be lukewarm in his praying when his real need of God's grace is pressing in upon his soul. The absence of serious interest in prayer and the lack of spiritual enjoyment and communion with, with the Lord is conclusive evidence of the low view of the need we have for the grace of God in our lives. A prayerless life or a life of prayer simply out of duty is undeniable evidence of a soul which has become spiritually lukewarm perhaps 
has never known spiritual life. This is no less true for an entire church. A prayerless church, we could say, is a useless church. And as Jesus said in Revelation 3, 14 to 22 to Laodicea, he will spit her out. In a sense here, we could say Jonah has been spat out. What good was a preacher who couldn't pray? He had no feelings of his own need for Christ, nor of God's rich grace. Therefore, he could not be used. It's true that we never feel Christ to be real until we feel him to be a necessity. But now in chapter 2, we see that Jonah finally comes around. He finally comes to understand as he feels as though he's in the grave that he needs God. And he turns his attention to God's promises, to God's salvation. And we could look at Jonah and just think about this prayer, it's all about Jonah, but what this is really about, what we see here today is the successful pursuit of a shepherd after a wayward child. God has pursued Jonah all through chapter 1, pursuing him again and again. And now the fruit of that pursuit is a heart that has been made tender. And so we'll break this up into three sections this morning. First, we'll see sovereign deliverance. Secondly, we'll see sovereign discipline. Thirdly, we'll see sovereign grace. We begin in verse 17 where it tells us that God had appointed this great fish to swallow Jonah. And you know, when you think of the story of Jonah or you go to, let's say, the bookstore, the Christian bookstore, and you find a kid's storybook on the book of Jonah and you pick it up and the first thing you see is a fish. A fish swallowing a man. And when we think of Jonah, that's what we think about. We think about the fish. I have heard ministers' sermons on sermon audio of men who have preached entire sermons speculating about what the fish just might have been and trying to somehow explain how there could have been this creature that swallowed this man. Well, the book of Jonah doesn't tell us what this fish is. It's simply a mystery. Perhaps it's a miracle, a divine act of God. The point, rather than the fish, is the sovereignty of God. In fact, it was a divine act of God because it says that the Lord appointed the fish. St. Clair Ferguson says, Few principles are more important in the Christian life than the practical recognition of the sovereign God and his gracious determination to draw us near to himself, whatever the cost may be. 
That's the point. Not the fish. We're not to get distracted with just this one little verse about a fish that was appointed that swallowed Jonah. Rather, we are to have our eyes focused on the sovereign God who appointed the fish to save his child. Everything in your life, in my life, has been sovereignly designed to bring us to God. Even the greatest trials that you and I will go through. You know, we often pray, and, and rightly so, there's nothing wrong with it. We ought to pray this, that, we would, that the trial would be taken away from us. Perhaps you have a sick child, you pray earnestly that child would be healed. But we also need to focus on the one who has ordained the trial for us. He's calling our attention to Him, calling us to turn our eyes to Him, to behold the One who is our Lord. It's not the trial in our life that's remarkable. It's the God who is sovereign over that trial. Well, the text tells us that Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And here we just have to pause briefly and skip over to Matthew 12. We wonder, what was Jesus saying there in Matthew 12 to the Pharisees? Well, he was telling them that there would be an unexpected sign. They wanted Jesus to prove that he was the Son of God. Isaiah 52 tells us that Jesus would be something we wouldn't expect. Our redemption would be something we wouldn't expect. You know, people can still do this today. If God is so good, why is there evil? Perhaps we can do this even in our own trials. God, if you love me, why are you testing me? But our salvation was something completely different than what the Jews ever expected. They could never have imagined, even though they should have known, that their salvation would come through separation, through death, and through resurrection life. And as we'll see this morning, this is what Jonah foreshadows. It's the salvation of God. He is a type of of Christ. Jonah's ultimate salvation would come through Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. But now we go back to Jonah. We'll come back to Christ again and again this morning. Jonah has finally come to the point where he has been humbled, and only then can he pray. He has now come to see his desperate need. He had not felt Christ to be a reality until he felt him to be a necessity. And so Jonah prays from the belly of the fish. And we need to keep in mind as we walk through this passage that Jonah is in the belly of the fish. True, he wrote this most likely afterwards, but this is the prayer that he prayed while he was still in that fish. 
And so he begins that prayer with a simple confession to show that God is the one who saves. He says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me out of the belly of Sheol. I cried, and you heard my voice. Jonah says, I cried, I, I called to the Lord. There was nowhere else for Jonah to go. There were no other options. We could say that he was at the end of his rope. What was the problem? Was it just that he was in the belly of the fish? No, he says, I'm in distress. I've called from Sheol. He feels as though he's standing at the very gates of death. It's only when you call out in absolute humility, personal abasement, that you can ever understand the grace of Christ in its richness. And so Jonah says, having been humbled, having cried out from Sheol, that God answered him. He says, he answered my voice. God answers the humble. Think about it. Why don't people want to believe that there is, that they need God? I mean, we... We can go through all our theology. We can say, yes, the Spirit needs to open their hearts. Absolutely. But we can also say that it's because they don't think they need God. Why don't we pray more often? Why don't we pray more earnestly? Why do our prayers often fall to the wayside? What about our devotions, our reading of God's Word? Why don't we read His Word and meditate on it? Why do we sin? Well, it's because in our minds, in a sense, we are either tricking ourselves or whatever it may be, we're thinking that we don't need God. Somehow we think we can get along without Him. Dependence on the Lord requires humility of heart. I wonder, have you humbled yourself? Are you humble today? Do you feel your need for Christ? Do you know your need for Christ? Do you know it in your heart, in your mind, and call out to Him for grace. But we see after this introduction, Jonah having acknowledged the salvation of the Lord, that he turns to what his heart felt in the belly of that fish, to the death that he felt there, to sovereign discipline. He says, For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven from your sight. Jonah sees that it is God who has cast him out. It was Jonah who had begun to run 
It was Jonah who had sinned. Now it's God who is casting him down. Jonah began this downward spiral and fall into sin and away from the presence, the loving communion of God. But this was no free fall. No, this was an intentional casting out, a casting away by God. The reason was Jonah's sin. The effect was separation from God's loving fellowship. If Jonah had obeyed God, he would have not forfeited this warmth of fellowship from his heavenly Father. He would have remained in God's loving fellowship, not having lost that consciousness of assurance and love. But he says God's billows and waves of discipline have passed over him. Jonah feels a burning agony of separation from the Lord. He feels it in his heart. But we need to understand something. You know, we could look at Jonah and consider it all as wrath. God's just pouring wrath on Jonah. But there are two types of separation from God's presence. One type is ultimate separation. It's a separation that was begun in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve sinned. Adam having the mind and the ability to see and understand exactly what he was doing, to think through all the consequences of taking that fruit, yet desiring to be like God, letting pride creep into his heart. He chose to sin. And in Adam's willful rebellion, we all now are separated. All humanity has been separated from God. No way for us to climb ourselves back into his presence. No fellowship. No light. Only darkness. But in God's grace, the children of God are redeemed through Jesus Christ, have been saved, have been brought back into that fellowship. The elect people of God go into that courtroom with the judge and the mediator, and through Jesus Christ we are set free from the condemnation that was ours. But oftentimes that courtroom picture stops there. But it doesn't stop there. From that courtroom, we're taken out through the side door into the judge's living room. And he enters and adopts us and seals that adoption with the son's blood. He says, you are my child. I love you. I care for you. Commune with me. Fellowship with me. I give you my law to live with me in blessedness. But we sin. And at times, even as the Westminster Standards tells us, 
because of our sin, we lose that sight of God's loving fellowship. So in a sense, we can say we are separated from God. Not ultimately, but we are set aside in a sense, almost as if a parent takes a child and puts them in the corner or takes them there to their room to discipline them. We are set aside by God and, and we need to feel His rod on our sinful hearts. This is what Jonah is feeling. He hasn't been cast out ultimately from God's presence. He feels the rod of God on his sinful heart, and he just can't see God's loving presence. But Jonah hasn't given up hope. He says, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. There is hope for Jonah. Jonah looks back in his mind to Genesis 3, to the promise of the seed. He would remember the promise to Abraham. He would remember the root of Jesse. Jesus said to the Jews, and said that the Jews would only receive the sign of Jonah. Well, how could that be? Jesus was perfect. Jonah was not. Jesus was spotless. Jonah was a wretched sinner. Paul says in Corinthians that Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us. Jesus was cast out of the loving presence of God. There on Calvary, he was the one who cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was smitten by God because he was forsaken on the cross. We are reconciled to God. Jonah is both looking back at the promises of God and looking forward to the promised one of God. He says, I looked up upon your holy temple. I said, we have to remember Jonah's in the belly of the fish. What temple is he looking at? He's looking at the temple, Jesus Christ, the holy temple. God told Moses to build the tabernacle according to the pattern he had seen on the mountain. The tabernacle was only a reflection of the heavenly reality. Jesus said in John 2, 19, that his body, that he is the temple of the Lord. He said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Jesus is the temple Jonah is looking at. But Jonah once again looks at the circumstances that he's in. He says, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. He uses the language of the deep in the waters, the this is language for death in the Psalms. Psalm 88 says, Like one set loose among the dead, 
like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more. For they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions of dark and deep. This is death. Jonah feels as though he's done for. This is no Davy Jones locker. Jonah knows that the wages of the sin is death, and the soul that sins shall die, as Ezekiel says. And in this darkness, in the belly of the fish, he feels as though death is creeping in upon him. But it's not even finished yet. Jonah hasn't described this downward fall yet. Perhaps we should say downward casting. He says, at the roots of the mountains I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Jonah has gone to the very bottom. God has cast him to the very roots of the mountains because of his rebellion. And now Jonah feels as though there are heavy iron bars being slammed behind him. Bars he cannot lift. He feels as though this is final. It is simply over. Sin has created a separation. He feels as though the psalmist who said, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. I wonder, do you understand this? Perhaps I could say, even do you feel it? You know, you will never understand your need for Christ unless you understand the effects of sin. There is no salvation, no reconciliation, unless you first understand the appalling sinfulness of your own heart. The situation, the frightening situation of the human condition. No, we can't understand it in its fullness, that's true. And I'm not saying you have to have some kind of an experience There's not six steps you need to take so that you feel that you're a sinner. But we can say this. You have never been a Christian if you have never known and accepted that you were hopelessly lost and condemned apart from God's grace. We could also say for the Christian, you will never escape sin. You will never conquer it unless you are willing to humble yourself before a sovereign God and cry out to Him. You have no strength of your own. The bars were slammed on Jonah He had nowhere to go. He couldn't pry that fish's mouth open and swim out. Nor can you and I pry off the sin that so holds to us. 
It is as if it has bars grasping our hearts. We need grace. We need to call out to God for his mercy. And this is where Jonah goes. He goes to sovereign grace. He looks to his Redeemer and he says, Yet you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Jonah just seems to burst out in exaltation. He was lost, yet God has saved him. God brought him up out of that pit. It was death that he felt he was given over to. The bars had been closed. The lock had been put on. The guard had been set. But God had rent open those bars. Snatched Jonah from the jaws of destruction. Jonah could cry out, O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? It wasn't Jonah's doing. No, he acknowledges that it was God's salvation. It is God's work. Jonah exalts the Lord. He says he is my God. He sees the love of God for such a wretch as himself. He knows he deserved this. He continues, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came, into your, to, came to you into your temple. Jonah remembers the salvation of the Lord and it extracts this prayer from his lips. What else could he do for sovereign deliverance? And remember, again, I emphasize, he's in the fish. But he says, my prayer has come into your temple. He's delivered even while he's still in the fish. He's been restored. In the presence of his father, he again that, senses that assurance, that love of God. No longer does he feel like an outcast. No longer does he feel as though he's been banished. No longer does he feel as though the death, the bars of death have clutched his heart. He again feels that loving embrace of his father rather than the loving discipline of his father. I was thinking this morning, even as I was reviewing my sermon again, God's love has never changed for Jonah. God's love has always been exactly the same for Jonah. The change was in Jonah. God had saving love for Jonah. God lovingly commissioned Jonah. God disciplined Jonah. God assured Jonah, and the love was always consistent change was in Jonah. Jonah just saw it now. Do you see God's love for you? His pursuit for you? 
And it's all through Jesus Christ. God has loved us so that he has sent his only son. And we can say, oh, the mystery of salvation. The Jews of Jesus' day could, couldn't imagine how a mediator, how their Messiah was to die. Even the disciples were baffled. And yet he had to. He had to pass through those depths, those waters of death that wrapped themselves around him. He had to go to the heart of the deep, to the very roots, we could say, of the mountains, where those bars were slammed shut. They were chained shut. He didn't just feel like they were. They were shut. There on Calvary, Christ, the perfect lamb, not the sinful Jonah, the Passover lamb, the spotless lamb, the innocent lamb was pierced for you, for me. We like sheep went astray. He like a lamb was led silently to the slaughter. Jesus was not spared God's wrath all so that Jonah would be able to be saved from the wrath of God. He cried out, it is finished, so that you and I someday in glory can cry out to him in worship to you who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. This passage we have before us doesn't just talk about Jonah, doesn't just talk about some smelly prophet and some fish's belly. It points us to Christ, who went to the grave for three days and three nights. All that sinful, damned people would be saved. If that doesn't strike you, with awe and wonder, then you don't understand your need. For there is no one, there is no other name, I should say, under heaven by which you or I can be saved. And this is what Jonah testifies. There is no salvation anywhere else. He says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. There's simply no salvation any other way, Jonah confesses. There's no hope in idols. As Jeremiah says, they're just broken cisterns. They can't even hold any water. We need to go to Jesus Christ always, whether for the first time or for the thousandth time as a child of God, we come again and again to that fountain for the assurance of our salvation. So Jonah, having been reminded of this salvation, having been reminded of the love of God for him in pursuing him, having drunk from this fountain of Christ, he says, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. Doesn't that sound similar to the sailors? They received salvation. They sacrificed to God. This is what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. 
You cannot know what it is to be saved, to be a child of God redeemed by the blood of the Lamb and not worship. Worship is an inevitable effect of salvation. When someone is saved, they don't care what other people think. They don't care even if they're a bad singer necessarily. The scriptures testify to us that when we think or meditate or for the first time come to understand or repeatedly through our Christian life again see clearly the salvation of the Lord, our, our hearts, our voices, all of us shouts with joy. It's not just dull, drab worship that says I'd rather be anywhere else. No, it boils up from a heart having beheld the Savior. It's exalted praise. Yes, as Christians, we sorrow at times. Yes, we grieve. Yes, there is times of difficulty. But I've observed that the greatest times of worship, the highest praises that I have ever heard in my life, have been during funeral services for beloved saints, where the people of God remember the salvation of the Lord. And in deep agony, they can do nothing but worship with the highest of praises for the salvation of their God. It's all because it's God's sovereign salvation not because they've done anything themselves, not because at that funeral that person who's passed away was such a great person, but it's because the Lord is sovereign and it is His salvation. And this is exactly what Jonah declares. He says, salvation belongs to the Lord. We could say that this is the theme phrase for the entire book. Salvation belongs to the Lord. There is truly no right worship, no true praise until we know that God saves and God alone. Do you worship the Lord for this? Do you exalt Him? Do you delight in this salvation that he has accomplished for you? Do you meditate on it? Thinking about how you were lost, how you are saved in Christ, and worshiping him for his great salvation. And perhaps you may ask, well, how can we be sure my mind it just plagues me with all sorts of thoughts? I have doubts, I have Fears, I tremble. How can I know that the Lord will redeem me? We all in life struggle with assurance, don't we? Every child of God at some point in their life will go through the valley, will feel that pain. How do I know? How do I know if God loves me? How can I be sure? Well, verse 10 tells us 
And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon dry land. Jonah, we can say, was raised from the pit. He became a sign to Nineveh. He had experienced death and had been delivered. But the greater than Jonah has come. This is what Jesus is telling the people of his day. Listen, the sign you'll get is me rising from the dead. Jesus experienced that death there upon the cross where all our sins were laid upon him and paid by him. But how can we know, how can we have assurance that those sins have been covered in his blood? What's the guarantee of that salvation? It's because the tomb was empty on the third day. That rock, that boulder, that, that stone was rolled back. Paul says to the Corinthians, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Quite frankly, if Jesus Christ hasn't risen from the dead, just go home. You're wasting your time. There is no point in coming to church on the Lord's Day Twice a day, the Lord's Day. There's no point in opening your Bible. There's no point in praying. You are the most foolish people in the whole world if Christ hasn't risen. But, Paul says, indeed, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, so also in Christ shall we all be made alive. For as in Adam all died, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, Paul says. This is our hope. This is your hope. We don't have an empty or a vain hope. We have hope in Christ Jesus who was raised from the dead. What do we go out into this world to proclaim to this world? Not a vain hope. We can go to say to them, listen, the Savior died, but he, he rose. He guaranteed salvation. Come, believe and be saved. When you as a child of God have sinned and your heart plagues you, and you struggle under the burden of sin, how can you be assured that God is a gracious Father who forgives? It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the proof. This is our hope that the temple that the Jews destroyed and hung on the cross was raised to life was exalted and now is seated at the right hand of God in glory, having been crowned. This was Jonah's hope. Even in the belly of the fish, before he was even physically delivered, he looked to Jesus Christ, who would be raised from the dead. He beheld the promises and he trusted the Lord. Is this your hope through the struggle of life as a child of God? Feeling sin grabbing at your hearts? 
do you look to Jesus Christ, the resurrection hope, and behold him, and then worship, worship with joy, worship with thanksgiving for the salvation you have in Christ Jesus. May this be your eternal hope. Let us pray. Almighty Lord, we thank you and praise you. We are not worthy of your salvation. We are not worthy to receive the least of your mercies, let alone to receive salvation through Jesus Christ by faith. And yet in your love, you have redeemed us. You have called us to be your own. You have declared your love for us by giving us your Son, your only begotten Son. And in mercy, you never allow your children, not the least of them, not the weakest of them, to be lost. You pursue us with love, unchanging love. You draw us out of the pits of despair, the trials and difficulties of life. And you raise our eyes to behold Jesus Christ seated at your right hand. You sent your spirit to dwell among us, to fix our gaze on the Savior. And we pray that we would not be stubborn that we would not be proud, but that we would humble ourselves and see our great need, that our minds and our hearts would be moved, our affections even would be moved to call out to you to be restored, encouraged, preserved for glory. Father, we thank you for your work in our hearts. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you would continue to work mightily in us, that we would daily be conformed to Jesus Christ, to your will. And we pray this in his holy name. Amen.